Good morning, everybody. Hey, this last Friday, we had an unexpected snow day. There were only two inches of snow on the ground, and we were a little bit confused as to what was going on, and so um, we got up Friday morning, and not thinking that school was going to be canceled, got our kids ready, and I grabbed our youngest daughter and got in the car and drove to school, and there was nobody there. Well, I mean, there was about four other cars of people just like me. I called my wife, and, and I said, hey, babe, there, there is nobody at the school, and she checked the email and come to find out they'd sent an email that morning saying school was canceled. And so I thought, man, these other people, they don't know, just like I didn't know. And so I pulled up to a, a car, and I rolled my window down and kind of had to honk the horn a little bit to get this lady's attention. And she rolls her window down, and I said, hey, did you hear? Uh, they canceled school today. It's a snow day. And her daughter in the back seat said, I love snow days. <laughs> and the mom, who obviously was dropping her daughter off on her way to, to work, said, I hate snow days. <laughs> As we continue on in this series called Love Is Today, we come face to face with the reality that there are oftentimes things that we simultaneously love and hate in life. And so I did a little uh, Facebook experiment this weekend. Some of you guys responded to it, and I said, hey, give me some things that you both love and hate at the same time. And I got a, a little bit of feedback. One of them was snow, in fact. We love snow and we hate snow. Um, a lot of people gave me desserts, and they listed them. You guys know where they're going, because the very next one was then exercise. <laughs> you love it and you hate it at the same time. Staying up late and sleeping in, both of those. You, you love them and you hate them at the same time. Um, a couple of people even said Facebook. I love it and I hate it. Um, and then my own here, uh, any Broncos game that comes down to the final minute. You love it and you hate it at the same time. You know, really, you could say that, that love is one of those bipolar things because you recognize that we can sway from one extreme to the other in just a heartbeat. And we use this word love in a variety of different contexts. And I think we, we hit on this last week as we, as we opened up this series. And I think we would all agree that love is one of those beautifully complex things. It's at the same time, simple and difficult to describe. The world's very best efforts to define love fall far short of the Apostle Paul's magnificent anthem of love that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's a description of Christ and the love that he enables in us when he comes to dwell inside of us. Now, the Greeks understood that Love had different meanings in different contexts, and it was the Greek language that the New Testament writers were uh, familiar with as they were writing the New Testament. The Greeks even used different words to capture some of those different meanings, and so they used the word philos to describe a friendship love. They used the word eros to describe romance love. And then they had another word for love, which they hardly used at all because it was so rare, and that was the word agape. See, agape was used to describe a commitment, a committed love. But these New Testament writers, they picked up on this word, and they used it extensively to describe God's self-sacrificing love that he displayed for mankind 
in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this word agape came to represent an unconditional love. And so when Paul is describing the character of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he's talking about this highest form of love, agape love, or true love. Let's read this again this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Last week, as we acknowledged that this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, we also came face to face with the reality that this passage of Scripture is actually a mirror that the Apostle Paul is placing in front of us. And as we read this, we look into this mirror and we're looking for its reflection in our own life. Do we possess this kind of love that Paul describes here so eloquently and yet it's so convicting? Last week, we started this series by talking about what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Today, we shift gears a little bit because we're going to talk about what love is not. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. And there's a common thread that's going to be woven through these three characteristics today, and I, I think we're all going to see it emerge as we look at these each one by one. But Paul starts out here in this section talk, telling us that true love does not envy. The word envy is the Greek word zelos. We get zeal from it. The word here is a strong word, which literally means to burn with zeal. But in this context, it means to burn with zeal for what belongs to someone else. When you envy, you desire what someone else has. And we can envy many things in life. We can envy a person's position. We can envy their possessions. We can envy their appearance. We can even envy another person's spiritual gifts. But there is no rivalry or competition in love. True love refuses to be jealous of others' blessings. It refuses to be jealous of others' blessings. Instead, it's glad for what others has, what others have. Jonathan Edwards once defined envy as a spirit of dissatisfaction. I think that's really good. I'd like you to think about that for a moment. Envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction. When you become dissatisfied with what you have, when you become dissatisfied with the situation that you're in, people who are dissatisfied with their own life often become jealous of what other people have. Here's a great example. When you look at what you have in your hands and you're dissatisfied with it, and then you start to look at what the other person has, and that's what you start desiring. That is envy. Now, this is a lighthearted approach to something that's actually a big issue. 
there are a number of things in our lives that we become dissatisfied with. And when that happens, it plants a seed inside of us called envy that we can really be unhappy with our situation. And let's be honest, it happens to all of us, doesn't it? There have been seasons, there have been times, there have been situations in your life where you are not happy with the place that you found yourself. And that dissatisfaction causes you to lift your eyes up and start looking around at what other people have. Oh, they've got it easy. Oh, the money that they have. Well, if I just had his position, if I just had her looks, and envy starts to really rise up. I think Jonathan Edwards was really onto something here. And he calls it out. When people are dissatisfied with their own life, they become jealous of what others have. Now the problem, one of the bigger problems of envy, is that it goes far beyond wanting what others have, and it actually leads those to be opposed to the happiness of others. In in other words, envy portrays a person who is so consumed with his own success that they don't want to see other people successful. When we're envious of others, we can't rejoice with them. We can't truly love them or truly love what God is doing in their lives because we want it. And so envy goes far beyond wanting what they have. It's wanting them to not have it. If you're holding the apple and the person beside you has the candy bar, it's not wishing that you both had a candy bar. It's wishing that you could take it away. See, this is what envy does. It's what it produces inside of people. And you see why Paul is calling this out. Listen, there's beautiful parts of this passage where he says, be patient, be kind. But then there's these moments when he says, you want no part of envy. Envy is a poison that will consume you and it will kill you. And envy is not a part of love. Love does not envy. Our culture tells us that we should be jealous. We should be jealous of people around us who have more. They have more status, more possessions, more power. But true love is content with what the Lord has provided. True love trusts the Lord that he has given us all that we need. I think it's easy for us to look at the provision, the blessings, the good things in life and say that we're grateful and that we trust the Lord in those. But when difficult situations come, are you still trusting the Lord, saying, God, I find myself in an undesirable position right now, but you're still enough. You have given me all that I need. That gets tough, doesn't it? Because it starts hitting home to real life. You can say, I'm not jealous, I'm not envious, but have you ever become dissatisfied and started to feel like maybe the Lord was holding out on you, that he was holding back his goodness and his blessings? That's not true love. True love trusts 
They trust the Father. They trust the Father. You cannot love someone and envy them at the same time. This is why Paul calls it out. There is no agape love and envy cohabitating. You cannot be together in that situation because envy causes us to treat others in wrongful ways. And you read about this throughout Scripture. You remember the story of Joseph. Scripture tells us that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they envied him. In fact, the gospel writers tell us that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to be crucified. The envy is a poison that will eventually consume the person who chooses to harbor it in their heart. That's why Proverbs 14, verse 30, says that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So you can see Paul in this teacher mode, but also parent mode, where he's teaching this church in Corinth what love looks like, but he's also parenting them and saying, you want nothing to do with envy. Trust me. Envy is not good for you. It's not good for the people around you. It leads to death. It will rot you. You want no part of it. It will rot the bones. See, agape love is always looking outward rather than looking inward. It's thinking of the other person rather than itself. True love is focused on others while envy is focused on you. So the next characteristic that Paul talks about is that true love does not boast. It does not boast. So the Greek word that Paul uses in verse 4 for boast is another one of these really strong words, and it means to literally, it means excessive self-talk. In other words, it describes a person who endlessly promotes himself and exaggerates his own virtues. One Greek scholar has said that the word boast pictures a person who is full of hot air. You've met people like that, haven't you? And do not elbow the person beside you completely inappropriate. If envy is desiring what somebody else has, boasting is desiring them to see what you have. It's strutting your stuff. It's showing off. It's boasting. And Paul gives us a strong warning to let us know that true love does not constantly talk about itself in order to look important. It does not constantly talk about its own, talking about itself to try and make itself look greater, to try and make itself look more important. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, at the beginning of this whole chapter, he was actually talking about some, a group of very super religious, super spiritual people who boasted about their spirituality but they had very little love in them. They strutted their stuff about how religious they were, but they demonstrated very little love. And I love how Paul described them. Noisy gongs, clanging cymbals, irritants, grating. Some people 
feel the need to draw attention to themselves, to always be on center stage. They want others to notice them, to admire them. I've even known people in ministry who couldn't stand for other people to get attention because they had to have the lights on them all the time. But it comes across as a clanging symbol to people around them. And I think, you, I think you understand this. I think you relate to this. If you know somebody who is always talking about themselves and you see them walking down the hallway, what do you do? Most people will try and get away because you know what's coming. It's irritating. You get frustrated with it. Why are you always talking about yourself? Why are you so consumed with you, you're no fun to talk to. This is another one of Paul's teaching moments, saying love, love attracts people. It doesn't repel them. And when you boast, you repel people. You repel people. Boastful people don't realize it, but everybody around them does. It repels people. Part of what Paul is presenting here in 1 Corinthians 13 is an opportunity for you and I to put our very best foot forward by demonstrating true love in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our words. True love attracts people, but boasting repels them. A lot of times people will exaggerate or they will boast because they want to gain some kind of a higher status or oftentimes because they want to, uh, they feel driven to prove their own worth. Regardless of the reason why people do it, that behavior does not demonstrate the way that true love behaves. But there's another issue with boasting. It's kind of like with envy. It goes beyond this initial phase here, because sometimes in order for people to make themselves look better, boastful people will attempt to make other people look bad. And I see a lot of nodding heads. You, you understand this. You've encountered people like this. People who pitch their own value by trying to demean others around them. They will try to make other people look like less in an attempt to make themselves look like more. And you've probably encountered that on uh, numerous places and numerous levels where somebody wants to feel bigger and so they try to make somebody else look smaller. They want to feel uh, smarter so they try to make somebody else look dumber. This is what boasting produces. Again, these elements, these characteristics that Paul is talking about, these are, they're, they're poisonous. When they get into your life, it doesn't stop. It just continues to spread and deteriorate and to bring death. And so this is another one of these issues with boasting. True love doesn't boast. True love does not cut other people down. It doesn't talk about itself all the time. True love does not try to make others look less important. It does not try to make other people look less important. People who put on this love don't build themselves up at the expense of others. 
So this is one of the beautiful things about agape love. Agape love is so strong, it's so confident, it's so sure that it doesn't need to speak of itself or its own accomplishments. There's a great passage in Scripture, Proverbs 27.2, that says, Let someone else praise you, and not your own mouth, an outsider, not your own lips. Numerous places in Scripture where it talks about the fact that we are not supposed to be placing ourselves, as Scripture talks about, um, don't assume a position at the head table, but let somebody else bring you there. Don't try and build yourself up. Don't brag in front of people. Let somebody else do it. In fact, Scripture says that if you will humble yourselves at the right time, God will lift you up. He will exalt you. It's not your job. And I think we forget our job sometimes. We forget our role Oftentimes we feel, we feel, well, who's going to represent me if I don't? Scripture says that the Lord will. Well, who's going to make me look good if I don't say something about it? Scripture says, humble yourself. God will lift you up. So we hit another one of those difficult places where we stub our toe on this passage And it becomes an uncomfortable place where we say love does not boast about itself. You cannot boast in love at the same time because true love is concerned with others while boasting is concerned with you. True love is concerned with others while boasting is concerned with you. You're starting to see the thread that's woven between these three, and we're going to hit it one more time. So closely related to this issue on boasting is the next issue of pride, which Paul brings up next. True love is not proud. Now, in the Greek, this is a verb rather than an adjective. True love does not act this way. It does not do these things. The word is fusio, and it actually means to inflate. You could translate it, love does not puff itself up. It doesn't look like this. Now again, this is a a lighthearted attempt to touch on something that's pretty significant in our lives. Sometimes we try to puff ourselves up bigger than we really are. That's what pride is. Pride is an unrealistic inflation of who you are. It's an unrealistic inflation of who you are. Boasting is an outward action that we just talked about, that you boast. Pride is an inward attitude. And oftentimes that becomes more difficult to control. In the same way that it's easier to control your words than it is your thoughts. It's oftentimes easier to control what you do than how you feel and what you think. And pride is an inward thing. But as you read through the entire Scripture, every one of the writers throughout Scripture will point at pride and will push on it and will call it out because it has no place in the life of a believer. But what do we do as believers? 
We puff our chest up again, and we push back. And that's what Scripture calls the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the old and the new. We fight this thing every day, Scripture says. Now, here's, here's my encouragement to you. You better fight it every day, because if you stop, you go down the path of pride, and you don't want that. So Paul says, love is not proud. True love does not puff itself up to feel superior to others. This kind of pride breeds a critical spirit that is no patience and no desire to act kindly. And so scripture tells us in Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And this is a great passage, but it's also um, a little bit uh, confusing because it feels incomplete. It's kind of like he told us to do something, but he didn't tell us how to do it. I shouldn't think of myself more highly than I should. Okay. But that sounds like what Paul is saying is that I can think of myself in a high manner. I can have confidence, but I shouldn't overinflate reality. I shouldn't think more highly of myself than I ought to. But here's his answer. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So here, here's, the, here's how these tie together. Here's how these two pieces of this passage really connect here. How do you keep yourself from becoming inflated beyond reality? How do you keep yourself from pride? He answers it by saying, think of yourself with sober judgment. And he's talking about recognizing the reality that who you are and what you have actually came from the Lord. It's actually not a you thing. It's not a me thing. We don't like that. We don't like to be reminded of that. Our flesh does not want any part of that. We want to be able to take credit for who we are and what we have. But Paul says, think of yourself with sober judgment. He's saying, remember who you are and what you have actually came from the Lord. So, Paul says, I will not boast in myself, but I will boast in him. That's sober judgment. The stuff that I have, the job that I have, the position that I have, the authority that I have, everything that I have actually is not about me. It's about him. Now, that's good Sober judgment, isn't it? And Paul's reminding us of that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. He warns us that agape love is never fusio. That's the word. That's the Greek word again. Fusio. It's never inflated. It's never deceived into thinking too highly of itself. True love does not arrogantly claim that it's better than others. It does not arrogantly claim that it's better than others. And this characteristic becomes even more significant in that it carries this arrogance in how we deal with people. And Paul uses this word fusio numerous times, especially in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 4, verse 6, he uses it to describe a pride and an arrogance that was developing between members of the church who believed that their particular ministry was more important than the other one. And they had this fusio, this pride. My ministry is better than your ministry. And so Paul calls it out, and in fact, later on in that same chapter, verse 19, he said, 
you'd better knock it off or I will come there and rebuke you. All of you who are puffed up, stop it. Knock it off. It's ridiculous. It has no place in the body of Christ. This is not true love. He hits it again in chapter 8, verse 1, when he says that knowledge puffs us up, but love edifies others. There's a lot of people that I've met who have a lot of degrees, and you can tell they have a lot of degrees because they have all the initials after their names. And they're really proud of all of those initials after their names. I'm an educator. I, I love teaching. I love education. I'm a lifelong learner, but I am not consumed with my titles. Neither should you. Knowledge can puff people up. I found a lot of people. I've met a lot of people who are prideful of all that they know. Some people are 13-year-olds. Not my daughter. It's not about a degree. It's not about the initials at the end of the name. Maybe it's about experience. Maybe it's just the coming of age that I know a lot of stuff and you don't. And Paul says, knowledge will puff you up. Not just puff you up, he's saying knowledge can make you prideful. But that's not what love does. Love edifies one another. It really becomes evident here that Paul was letting us know that love does not behave in an arrogant or a superior manner. So here's, here's where we hit this uh, as we close up this portion of it. Having a good, healthy self-esteem is a good thing. Can I get an amen on this? Having a healthy self-esteem is a good thing. Paul is not saying that you should think less of yourself but rather he's saying have a healthy perspective of who you are. Don't overinflate it. In fact, Scripture tells us that we should find great confidence and great esteem in who we are in Christ. Now, I like what C.S. Lewis said on, uh, on this issue. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a good perspective, isn't it? It oftentimes comes down to what you spend the majority of your time thinking about or focusing on. True love is focused on exalting others while pride is consumed with you. Love does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. So we see these, this thread that weaves through here now. And we recognize that love focuses on others, but envy, boasting, and pride focus on themselves. And it's really a focus issue. It really comes down to the things that you value most or you think the most highly of. Is it yourself or is it other people? Now listen, I, I know um, as believers, uh, we know the right answer to this. But remember, this passage is saying, but are you wearing it? Are you actually living this way? We know how to answer a lot of questions the right way. The problem is that we, we actually don't want to follow through with that. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of my really honest six-year-old daughter who, when we say, time to clean the kitchen, she, she's like, 
I know that I should clean the kitchen, but I don't want to. That's how we feel a lot of times, isn't it? I know that I should value other people as more important than me, but a lot of times I don't want to. I want to think that my success is more important. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And this morning, we're looking again into this mirror of God's love. And it's asking if these qualities, these character traits that Paul is defining here, if those are reflected in our own lives. Love is not envious. It's not boastful. It's not proud. So we know it. We read it. We agree with it. Some of you even said amen to these things today. The question is, do we put it on? Have we put on this kind of love? As God looks at us, does he see it reflected in our own lives? And as, as uncomfortable as it may be, I encourage you to take the time to ask the Holy Spirit to show you areas in your life where, number one, maybe you have greatly desired success for yourself at the expense of others. Or number two, maybe you have exaggerated the truth about yourself to look better to others. Or lastly, you've placed yourself on a pedestal of pride or arrogance over others. Now, this is one of the beautiful things about the Holy Spirit and his interaction in our lives. He's a gentleman. He moves in love, but he also brings conviction, not condemnation, but conviction. And conviction is the thing that we, we wrestle with. It's the thing we should wrestle with. In fact, the most important part of our time together on Sunday mornings, and I know a lot of people have opinions on it, it's singing, it's communion, it's the Word of God. My opinion on this is that the most important part of our time together on Sunday mornings is what you do with conviction. When God speaks to you, how do you respond? Do you put a period in your notebook and close it, and that was good? Or do you say, God, I want to see this in my life? And that's where we're at right now. We're looking at these things. We're talking about these things. We're looking and laughing at funny pictures on the screens, and we're having a good time, and we every once in a while stub our toes on these uncomfortable things, and, and we, we process it. We wrestle with it together, but now here we are with an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak personally into your life and to point at something and for you to go, oh, for the Holy Spirit to say, trust me, you want no part of that. It's not good for you. You want no part of it. And how do you respond? And so that's where we're at as we close today. We're at a response time. How do we respond to what God is speaking? Firstly, if you're here today and you've never responded to God's love for you by just saying yes to Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that before we leave today. We're going to do that in just a moment. If you're at that point where you just say, God has given me unconditional love, and I recognize that. I recognize I didn't deserve it. 
I recognize I didn't earn it. I recognize I did nothing for it, but God's agape love is right here for me. If that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Christ. So with all heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to do a simple prayer this morning. If that's you, again, just I invite you to pray this prayer with me today. You can say, God, I thank you for your unconditional love for me. Lord, you know that, that I don't have it all together. You know that I haven't done anything to deserve it, and yet you love me anyway. And God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins, but also to give me a brand new life. And today, Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would come into my life as my Lord and Savior. Give me the strength to follow you from this day forward. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, we want to be able to congratulate you. We want to be able to support you. At the end of our service, in just a moment, our elders are going to be coming forward, and they're going to be here to pray for any needs that you guys might have in the congregation today. But if you said yes to Jesus today, I want to encourage you to come and tell one of those elders this morning. They're here to encourage you and to pray with you. That's what a family does. That's what a church family, that's what the body of Christ does. And we do want to celebrate with you. In fact, let's take a moment to congratulate those who prayed that prayer for the first time today. All right, I better wrap up. I better right now. I better finish this. But we've got to respond. What do you do when the Holy Spirit points at something in your life and says, you don't want this? Trust me. Scripture says our proper response is surrender. Saying, all right, I need your help, God. Help me with this. And that's really where we're at right now. And I'm just going to ask you if you would uh, bow your heads one more time, and I'm going to pray. But I would like you to join with me in this prayer, that this would be something that would come from your heart as well. Father God, we are humbled by your unconditional love for us. Thank you, Lord, for not only showering your love on us, but also making it possible for that same love to dwell inside of us. This love that's patient and kind, that doesn't envy, that doesn't boast about ourselves, a love that's not puffed up with pride. And Holy Spirit, we do ask you now that you would help us to put on this love, that you would cloak us with gratitude and with humility, that we would be able to reflect you in all that we say and do. And all God's people said, amen.